because this whole problem of <clears throat> the movement of ideas, which we now say is very simple across frontiers, books get translated or we learn to read others' languages, um, it still seems to me that although it occurs favorably in many instances, this movement, a sort of import and export of ideas and writing, always takes place within certain social situations of which we have to become conscious. Hello, and welcome to the Radical Thoughts podcast, where four commies, though there are only three of us for this first episode, are attempting to read through the entire Verso Radical Thinkers bookshelf text by text. We hope to separate the wheat from the chaff in radical theory, to look at how theory developed, how earlier problems have expressed themselves in new ways today, and how we can push beyond radical thoughts into radical practice. For our first episode, we will be talking about Raymond Williams' book, Culture and Materialism. You just heard a clip of Williams in conversation with Jacques Derrida, and are currently hearing 22 Ghosts 3 by Nine Inch Nails. In a moment, you will hear us talking about base and superstructure, possibility, and utopia. So do we want to just kind of start over again? Because I also forgot my introduction. Yeah, introductions first, though. Yeah, yeah, smart. Um, cool. So welcome to this new podcast. It's one of a billion in the left sphere, but hopefully you'll find this one interesting. Uh, so far, we're calling it uh, Radical Thoughts. We'll have to see if that changes. But I'm Patrick Higgins. Uh, I'm not anyone particularly important. I occasionally write things online. I've written for Cosmonaut Magazine. I have a piece coming out from Red Wedge Magazine. I've got some poetry on uh, former people. And I write for a blog called penandscreen.blog. And I consider myself a Marxist and a communist, though I need to work on getting some actual praxis done. But yeah, that's me. And I'm here with two other co-hosts of this podcast who uh, reached out when I started talking about this idea. Hey, this is uh, Donald Parkinson. Um, I'm a writer and editor for uh, Cosmonaut.blog. And uh, I'm also a Marxist. And uh, try, I try to think of myself as a relatively heterodox Marxist rather than a dogmatic one, whatever that counts for. And excited to do this podcast and i'm andrew woods um i write in uh, various places about uh politics and uh, culture and history and a uh, surprise surprise i'm also a marxist and i'm interested in um really getting to grips with like the uh r radical thinkers series and um seeing who's neglected and like what what ideas we can uh, like uh, pull from the past to uh, help form a political project today well yeah so it's a good time to mention that basically the foundation of this podcast is we're going to try and read through as many of the 
Radical Thinker series put out by Verso Books as we can in uh, not strictly the like release order, but probably like in generally ser- like release by release because they go in kind of like bunches of books. Um, and yeah, I just kind of wanted to get a good reading schedule and talk about these kind of things. And I think it's interesting how there's a lot of the cool new left stuff that was happening got published through this, but also it intersects with some of the turns towards postmodernism and post-structuralism. And it kind of gets messy and it's interesting to sift through what seems good and what seems bad and what led to what. Um, And some of their more recent stuff isn't as much tied in that. And it's kind of interesting because they have some stuff that's more like they had a release that was all about like queer and gay and trans issues. And they had a release that was all, you know, the 200th anniversary of Marx and stuff that was all texts about Marxism. And some of that stuff is just, I think, good too. So um, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting to talk with people about that kind of stuff. Our first book, we're starting off with Raymond Williams' uh, book, Culture and Materialism, which is a collection of essays. And Raymond Williams is interesting. He's one of the like first new leftists with E.P. Thompson and, um, oh gosh, I can't remember what the other guy's name is. Stuart Hall. Stuart Hall. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, Stuart Hall. Uh, they started, I, I believe they started what was the first New Left Review before it moved to Perry Anderson. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of left, they all went their own ways and kind of did their own things and um, started their own journals after that. Because I know E.P. Thompson despised Anderson for doing what he did with his direction. But <laughs> yeah. Um, which there's good stuff that comes out of those debates too. But um, with this, yeah. So Raymond Williams is kind of your classical, kind of this classic turn towards questions of culture, particularly in the English setting. Yeah, he write, he, uh, we're probably not going to get through everything, but we've got some stuff here that I thought these were really good. Um, I know some of you, I know, Donald, you're not a huge fan of them. I did come from kind of a Frankfurt schoolish background. Um, not that I agree with everything in them. Um, and I partially just like them as writers more than theorists in some cases. But um, he's definitely a lot clearer than some of that stuff and some of the French stuff. Yeah, it's I mean, I probably readable. would like the Frankfurt School more if I could understand what the fuck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, honestly, that's probably just me, like, revealing my Philistinism, but... Mm. Well, we'll get to talk about some of them a little bit. So, yeah. in comparison to the Frankfurt School, Raymond Williams is like a from a proper working class Welsh background, whereas most of the Frankfurt School thinkers were uh, had quite privileged um, bourgeois backgrounds. So, I think one of the uh, reasons for Williams' accessibility. Uh, accessibility in terms of uh, prose comes from um, wanting to um, uh, transmit uh, his analysis to um, everyone, really. Yeah, he definitely has that. The structure of feeling in his work. (laughs) Um, Williams also, I think he 
I know he talks about like I don't remember if he mentioned it directly here, but he talks about hegemony and stuff. I don't know exactly how influenced he was by Gramsci, but it's kind of he kind of has that sort of vibe to him in some of his stuff. Yeah, he's definitely influenced by Gramsci. I mean, he yeah. he talks about Gramsci directly in the amazing mm-hmm. superstructure article. Oh, he did. Okay. Yeah, he's definitely trying to uh, blend like Lukács's totality and Gramsci's hegemony in that piece with discussing like the totality of the totality of like uh, uh, sets of practices and um, hegemony to talk about how uh, those practices are experienced in everyday life. Well, that's one thing that's interesting about Williams is he really talks, he really gets invested in talking about culture as like what people do. Like he talks about it as a way of life pretty directly. Um, He's very invested in that notion of thinking about culture in that way. And then relating to relating that to that kind of hegemonic um, critique and idea of how that intersects with things and infuses things with meaning. I think like for for Williams, like culture is it's not something that's in this superstructure that's determined by an economic base, but rather like culture itself is part of production. Mm -hmm. It's something that we produce. And so we can't just look at culture as something that is like a reflection of economic relations. It's, you know, obviously it's materially produced, but it's, it's not just, um, I think the way Williams puts it, it's not only reproduced, but it is produced. And so it, it allows an opening to where not all culture has to necessarily be part of just the, uh, the dominant apparatus of bourgeois society. And so there can be genuine culture that isn't purely, you know, just a bourgeois construct. I do. I think one of the things I found interesting and kind of useful in Williams, especially with things like the base and super structure and the means of communication as means of production essays was he, he, it did feel like this was something that was accessible and a good way of talking. Like, I have I have my friends who are kind of like, you know, they're like radical liberals and they come out of academia with me and they kind of come from like that more postmodernist, like, you know, like they're my friends and stuff, but they tend to have that kind of like, oh, politics is more like when you do performance art and like Judith Butler, that kind of thing. And they always do that thing where, you know, I start trying to talk about kind of like oh, well, what about, like, the way you work and produce society? And I try to communicate, like, I'm not saying that we should think of things as economics in the sense of numbers and graphs that go up and down. The point is, is, like, the way that you interact with the world and the world is organized to make things, which includes your activity as a person and making art and the things that you want to do. And I think that this is, these kind of essays are really good at getting into that, like, and like you were saying, like, it's not, oh, there's this, like, economic base that's this kind of just, like, dirty or abstract kind of, like, oh, it's the numbers go up and down, and it's this many people go to the factory each day. But it it's something that's infused with the activity and the way that we find meaning in things. And he does a really good job at kind of expressing how that's 
it's not just like dry and scientific whereas the superstructure is all beautiful but like not important kind of thing he has quite an extended um, discussion of like the relationship between the base and superstructure, especially when it comes down to trying to figure out, okay, what is what is the relationship between uh, these two spheres, and what uh, do both these um, different spheres uh, represent? So I think he does a great job um, actually reevaluating vocabulary that if you're in uh, radical circles or Marxist circles, you kind of take for granted and sort of become uh, uh, regimented into cliches. Like, oh, of course the base comes first and then superstructure is like that culture thing. Whereas what uh, Williams does expertly in that article is go, well, what do we mean by determine? Mm -hmm. um, is it a uh, process that uh, predicts or prefig uh, prefigures what's going to appear in the superstructure? Or is it uh, something that's more along the lines of uh, setting limits and exerting pressure and how this whole process is as dynamic as um, the base itself? Yeah, I mean, reading this essay, I kind of just came off thinking that maybe it's just not worth using the base and superstructure yeah, yeah. except as a, as a metaphor for very specific relations. But I think it can often confuse things more than it explains things like mm -hmm. let's say we're like talking about the the influence of like uh of like an artist on society like a, the artist is producing art and through that process they are actively engaging in, in a process of changing culture it's mm -hmm. not like the artist is like taking in economic information and acting according to that information I think um, the the Bolshevik guy Lunacharsky had a similar idea to this. And he, he had this whole idea that artists were producers who were producing human culture mm -hmm. and therefore it didn't really make sense to think of art as something within the superstructure or culture as something within the superstructure. And especially if you think about the... Uh if you're stuck in a way of thinking about the artist as someone who uh, makes an artwork then um, that conception can be uh, as williams puts it incorporated very easily and, and commodified whereas if you have this conception of um, the artist as producing human culture or the the, the artist as um, uh, this practice among a set of practices uh, you have the potential for um, not only um, alternative practices, but also oppositional practices, as uh, Williams points out uh, in the essay as well. And you also have like, um, what does he call them? Like practices that are kind of like leftovers of an earlier, earlier. Uh, yeah, residual, residual, residual yeah, practice. Exactly, and that kind of is. Uh, a good way of like explaining to people how like if we just change capitalism like bigotry won't just go away on its own mm -hmm. because like there are residual practices that are still reproduced and continue on after there has been a change 
and I, and I think that there are uh, i mean there, there's a further distinction he makes about like residual incorporated and residual unincorporated and he makes that same distinction with um emergent practices so just because something is um um uh from the past doesn't necessarily mean that it reinforces the uh power structure and not and just because it's new doesn't mean that it's um revolutionary yeah one one question i guess i had thinking through some of this is he does he does do a really good job of kind of questioning or pushing the base and superstructure model to something that's potentially new and i really do think that um i i think i had kind of been reading through enough and overcome that like that really um quote unquote orthodox like base and superstructure dichotomy that's just very rigid and doesn't really hold with i think real ways of looking at things and uh i think overlooks how complex even marx and Engels were in thinking about that but i guess i, I was wondering to some degree how much like are we trying to um how much of raymond williams in this is he thinking about things in terms of how we should always think about them or is this more of a like a historical critique to some degree about the way that culture like is there something in his his framework or model of thinking about things that is only going to make sense for capitalism itself as a mode you know like is this something that is itself going to be overcome with, I mean, obviously we can't predict what society would look like in socialism or communism or whatever, but I kind of, I kind of was like looking through this and I think it's, it's really complex and works really well, but I kind of wondered like, is the, is he trying to do something that's more broad and transhistorical and more of just like an epistemological well, this is how we can look at things, or is he trying to make something that's a little bit more specific about the interactions of capitalism itself? Um, I think he's talking about a more trans-historical way of looking at things. Like, I don't think he's saying this is how we need to look at all phenomena and all society, but I think because he's talking about production in general, which is basically the only trans-historical thing yeah. for Marxism. It's all societies, people produce things, and they arrange their production of these things in different ways. And I think you could use this theory to look at cultural production in, like, the Mayan Empire or the Byzantine Empire or modern-day capitalism or socialism, even. Do you? Th uh, do you I think guess uh, actually, maybe oh, yeah. I, I mean that's not true. But go on. Well, I was, uh, I was just wondering if that would uh, still hold for like the uh, means of communication as production essay, because I think he's definitely talking about a, sp a specific uh, phase, historical phase of production um, that we could probably like refer to as uh, the culture industry as a, a shorthand and the type of cultural analysis that he's working with in the basin superstructure essay is an attempt to um look beyond the commodification of culture 
which is its alienated form and see it as a much more integral part of production um i was just thinking that like um the whole because he brings the whole idea of hegemony mm -hmm. into the picture and so i think that like like in a theoretical classless society, I don't think that you would have the same kind of hegemonic structure. So that might be one of the more like historically specific things about his analysis. Mm -hmm. I think one of the interesting things about the uh, the essays arranged in this text is that they did include um, essays. Uh, where Williams is um, anticipating or proposing or trying to conceptualize uh, an idea of uh, cultural revolution, which is uh, linked to his idea of the long revolution. So I don't think that his uh, cultural analysis is in any way distinct from this uh, larger uh, political uh, project in his mind. I haven't have Andrew. Have you read the Long Revolution? I haven't read that by him. Um, I, I, I definitely uh, have a copy of it, but I haven't read it. No, it's, mm -hmm. it's one of those books that I haven't uh, got round to. But I mean, I, I think there's um, an interesting like characterization of the Cultural Revolution in his essay Beyond Actually Existing Socialism yeah. on uh, two. Five seven, where he's like uh, a cultural revolution by contrast with other social programs is directed towards a general appropriation of all the real forces of production, including now especially the intellectual forces of knowledge and conscious decision as the necessary means of revolutionizing the uh, social relations which follow from variable forms of control of and access to the productive forces. Yeah, that was one of my favorite essays, actually, was oh, yeah. the, uh, you know, Actually Existing Social. Actually, partly because I've read Rudolf Barrow, yeah. the guy oh, yeah. that he's talking about, and he's one of my favorite, like, Marxist writers. Like, he probably might be, like, the best, in my opinion, like, writer on the um, problems and potentials of actually existing socialism. Mm -hmm. He was writing from West Germany or East, East Germany. Germany. Yeah. He was like one of the only like well-known like Eastern Bloc dissidents who was not a market socialist at all in any way whatsoever and was really trying to just figure out how to create like a more a more socialist society mm -hmm. and how to kind of um move forward towards communism. Yeah, this essay was really good and I I remembered that uh, you had had that podcast discussion about Barrow, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, but I don't know too much about him aside from what was talked there. Um, his discussions on, I, I do like he has kind of a snarky thing about like, well, a bunch of people around the new left and stuff started talking about culture and everyone kind of was saying, oh, that's dumb, don't do that. And then immediately in China, there's a cultural revolution <laughs> and everyone starts asking again what that means. Um, which which I, I think that is actually kind of an interesting point. Like, I'm not a Maoist or an ML or an MLM or what have you, but it it is kind of interesting, like, even, in, even internally, that became a question, like, internal to the actually existing socialism's mm -hmm. 
um, framework that that emerged as a thing that had to be addressed and and like you mentioned like lunacharsky and stuff and some of those earlier soviet figures or like bogdanov and stuff were asking these kind of questions too and there's there's the kind of that interaction of what does a cultural revolution mean for people who aren't under uh some sort of attempt at socialism and what does it mean for people who are under an attempt at socialism and, and to, to bring it back to the base and stupor structure essay like i think the um the kind of orthodox ml understanding was that like you know we changed the base we collectivized the means of production and instituted planned economy and then a new culture will develop from there whereas with the williams approach I get asked the question, so yeah, we might have, you know, changed the economy in, in a very fundamental way, but nonetheless, like the question of like how we produce a new culture and how we overcome what, you know, new problems that are created in a new society, if that's still something that humans have agency and that's still a question that we have to um, mm -hmm. ask and we have to figure out. And I think that that's ultimately like in a lot of ways that was the question raised by the maoist cultural revolution as well was you know we've established like a socialist state or whatever but then now the question is like how do we actually move forward and, and create a new society from this base i said the whole like the concept that williams develops is that like there isn't this mechanical relation between the base and superstructure and that humans we actively create new culture as an act of production yeah he has a a really just short line on in the beyond actually existing socialism where he puts it as like consciousness is no longer the mere product of social being but is at once a condition of its practical existence and further one of its central productive forces mm -hmm. um so yeah, he's he's really it's a it's an interesting attempt to kind of think about like the role consciousness plays, but it, without going into that kind of like, oh well, consciousness is just like this vessel that you pour ideology into, and that can be good or bad depending on what you your project is, kind of stuff. But I guess what what I keep wondering is like, I like how much of this becomes voluntaristic to some degree because he never actually really seems like a voluntarist but like it's it's an interesting tension between he has that kind of like he's trying to take gramsci and apply it to lukash and like avoid kind of the pitfalls of that sort of like well you just need to get enough people invested in it uh to fight the totality and see things as they actually are but i also just don't know exactly like, is his goal more to just develop a means of communication? Is he really just kind of going down to the, the real framework-based question of, like, how do you communicate what we're trying to do to people? Hmm. Well, I think um, with the issue of um, actually existing socialism, and he's discussing there, he's talking about, like, how we collectivize information because like you can collectivize like the uh, the physical mean the capital means of production, but like you still have like bureaucracy which basically rules through controlling information to control people and and create this mental manual division of labor. That that was like Barrow's big question was how do we fix that? And so I think that 
that kind of works its way back into the um the question of culture because it asks like the question of like like um how do we create a um a culture that's not based in like this distinction between like people who think and people who do things yeah he definitely he brings up yeah the kind of like intellect like the question of intellectual labor and how that in and of itself is almost alienated from other you know quote unquote like traditional or physical kinds of labor it's like the uh, the vision of mental and manual labor goes back long before capitalism yeah which like the development of like a caste of priests who manage the affairs of the community while other people like labor and like produce surpluses that are appropriated by them yeah like i mean like there's a reason ancient sumer most of the documents we have are like these long administrative texts about organizing where tribute is coming from yeah exactly and i think that part of williams's project is breaking down this division so that culture is something that's universalized amongst all people and not controlled by a minority group of people i think that's a question that you get in that you know actually existing socialism is how do we break down this deeper division between intellectual labor and and grunt labor or however you want to call it he does have a pretty kind of interesting critique of just like the breakdown of communication from the left um like his notes on marxism in britain since 1945 and he like has this whole thing where he's like just anyone who is like vaguely left is just called marxist now like it doesn't like there's not a really good idea of what being a marxist or being a communist or being this or that really means at least in uh, britain around this time well, yeah, uh, there's a, a great little footnote at the beginning of that chapter that's uh, talking about like the uh, the Conservative Party conference that year, where they were talking about the neo-Marxist left and the Labour Party. And it just has a footnote that says, "This is nine. This is from 1976, but the description is so commonplace that it could be any recent year." And I just put a note that said 2019 because that's pretty much what. The Conservative Party were saying at the uh, the conference uh, uh, last year as well. So it's a sort of a, a constant strain um, of what he calls the, the uh, well, I guess the consequence of what he calls uh, the wrong kind of liberalism in that culture and anarchy essay. Uh, the, the the left in Britain always associated with um, anarchy and uh, chaos rather than um, organization. On the one hand, though, I think it is kind of interesting because even in the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels have this thing where they say, like, when they do their whole uh, specters haunting Europe, blah, 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 famous ghost, um, like, it, it goes into a thing where they say, like, any sort of opposition party is immediately called communist and that's how we know that people are scared of us is that you know you can be the most mild opposition party ever that just wants a little bit of this a little bit of that and they'll just decry you as communist because that's the the threat so mm-hmm. on some sense it's not even that much of a new issue Indeed. but it is kind of it is kind of interesting well i think that's interesting is that it's become an issue interior to the question of the left itself 
rather mm -hmm. than being a sign of strength. Because yeah. um, like now, like I keep wondering just like, to what degree does having a labor movement mean you have a left anymore? Um, what to what does it mean having a, a a labor party mean you have a left? Like what where do you where do you reach the point where you are having people do the kind of cultural production that Williams is talking about? That when someone feels like they need to stand up for labor and for workers, they're doing it from the perspective of, oh, I'm I'm on the left, I'm critiquing capitalism or the system i want something different you know like because you can have reactionary we, we've learned now that you can have reactionary labor movements or you know people who think of themselves as that or claim to be yeah i think that um that's kind of works into another one of raymond williams's general themes which is how language is contested mm -hmm through this like these processes of cultural production and class struggle and you know that's basically where meanings of words are they're not be static things but they develop and change through social processes and, and material processes he does some pretty good i mean even some of his works he does some pretty good of like i don't know that kind of like genealogy stuff mm -hmm. like right like the social darwinism one yeah that was a great one like mm -hmm. where he's just like let's like like because he does a good job of just being like hey these tendencies were there in like the start of darwin's theory even if darwin himself probably wasn't like what we today think of as a social darwinist but, yeah like, there's I mean, a darwin tension there influenced by malthus himself yeah mm -hmm. well because he said because i think it's at the very beginning yeah he has um he does have somewhere like a kind of snarky thing where darwin wrote in a wrote something about like oh someone put out this ad about how i'm showing that all the like weak are gonna get rooted out and it's absolute hogwash but then at the same time he does have this kind of like but at the same time we need strong people and strong people to carry on you know what's good in us and stuff like it there like there's a tension there yeah he has a book called keywords Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been needing to read that. Yeah, it's just yeah. a bunch of different entries of words with kind of like just over quick overviews of their genealogy and their meaning, and it's very very similar to that. Yeah, I, uh, and in the introduction to that, there's a fantastic like long long statement about uh, what his beliefs about uh, vocabulary and how language is always. Uh, con contested uh, it goes something along the lines of uh, this book is an exploration of the vocabulary of a crucial area of social and cultural discussion which has been inherited within precise historical and social conditions and which has to be made at once conscious and critical subject to change as well as continuity if the millions of people on whom it is active are to see it as active not as a tradition to be learned nor a consensus to be accepted nor a set of meaning which because it is our language has a natural authority but as a shaping and reshaping in real circumstances and from profoundly different important uh, points of view and um i mean as, as we've been saying this relates uh, integrally to like um his definition of culture as not something just uh, an object that is there that we uh, like uh, view as uh, passive spectators or something along those lines but actually part of 
um, a practice of um, adoption and reconfiguration and all that sort of stuff. He does also have, in the Social Darwinism essay on page 89, he has this kind of interesting point where he says that there's this guy um, who wrote a piece called Thoughts on the Application of the Principles of Natural Selection and Inheritance to so Political Society. I don't know how you pronounce his name, like Beige Hot or Beige Hot. Um, and he has this kind of interesting critique where he says, like, this guy kind of tries to do what I'm pointing out needs to be done on, like, this relationship. But he says um, uh, his, his famous analysis of the English Constitution was, in its way, a superb piece of demystification, but of a rather special kind. Demystification in order to remystify. Demystify, yeah. 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 Um, he analyzed the English Constitution in terms of its theatrical show. He wrote quite sharply about the window of Windsor, and he saw and approved the whole panoply of the British state as a means of creating deference in its subjects. He then argued with a quite new tone and its Victorian social argument that this was necessary to any well-ordered state. But it, it, it's kind of that, I mean, it, it's a little bit like, I don't know, something that maybe Zizek would say or something. But like, he got, kind of makes a good point about like that oh, yeah, you can find plenty of people who claim to critique culture, but really what they're saying is this or that is in bad taste or is against the values of the institutions it's coming from. But those institutions are necessary. Like, um, it, it just gives you a good indication of how how he sees this rooted and that kind of thing about, like, yeah, with, like, key words, he's saying, when you start seeing the language and stuff contested, that should be a way of pushing forward towards other kinds of contestation and not just thinking of it as wordplay. And there is a, a similar instance in uh, Culture and Anarchy where he talks about uh, there being um, many different Matthew Arnolds. There is like the, mm -hmm. the residual Matthew Arnold, there's the dominant Matthew Arnold, and there's also an emergent reading of... Uh, Matthew Arnold. So each of these different interpretations come from a specific location within the uh, structure of feeling, as um, uh, he'd describe it, which, of course, has everything to do with uh, hegemony and um, culture as practice. One issue I do have with this is maybe it's it's, I think, also to some degree just an issue that relates to some critiques of hegemony and i haven't read enough gramsci to know which critiques are in good faith and which are kind of just caricatures and stuff but there is kind of that issue of like well where do you find the point where you have to say this thing that people are talking about isn't an issue this thing that is going on is something that we just have to accept it's a little hard to like some like i really love what he's doing but sometimes it is kind of like especially today just some of the I don't want to be like a like identity politics. Everyone's arguing over the way you say things or don't say things. But I think that there is kind of a point where we're like, hmm, when do you just kind of say this part of arguing about what this means in particular or whether this strain of tradition is good or reactionary or not is just not worth fighting about? Well, this is where, like, the distinctions that he puts forward is... Uh, the distinctions that he puts forward are important about whether it's incorporated or 
unincorporated or whether it's in the process of incorporation because there is never one uh, the hegemony is never necessarily stable or um static um it always depends on uh well it's it's relationship to reality always depends on on the moment and the situation i think yeah i don't know it, it's just kind of a part of i guess wondering how much i just i agree so much with a lot of his points about what needs to be contested but then there's also just that issue of like i guess it's important i guess what i would say is it's it really is important to look at how he's trying to connect that question of contestation and history towards production and communication mm -hmm. as production because because otherwise you can get trapped in the fact that part of hegemony can be having people contest over things and fight over things in a way that just uh, furthers the establishment of other relationships mm -hmm. and things, especially uh, kind of leading back to that point about like, well, suddenly everyone's a Marxist and everyone's fighting over what that means, but there's not an established way of trying to make production of communication that will actually start to cut through that. It's just a matter of, well, this word means this to me, this word means this to me, and it's not it's not connected to that process. Yeah, I think part of the solution to that issue is to stop kind of like maybe maybe accept that these words are all in flux and try to fight for our own meanings of these things. Like for example, we can say that the word democracy is it means different things to different classes and subclasses and just cultural organizations, but nonetheless, like, we should put forward a vision of democracy that is, you know, empowering to the working class and, and socialist and content, and and we can, you know, just, like, accept that other people are going to use that word in ways, but we should still fight for our meaning of that word and not just in this way of like yelling at people and telling them they're not using the word correctly but by actually creating practices around that meaning yeah it's good in the basin superstructure i guess that's kind of what he calls it like doesn't he call it something like selective tradition i uh, yeah yeah where he's talking about like um how the dominance part of the hegemony uh is always trying to select uh practices um that are celebrated as the tradition or as um ones well to, to, to apply it more concretely ones like a, a nationhood or like a, a more sort of local idea of what our culture means yeah it's like um like you have cultural traditions and people select from these cultural traditions the elements that most fit their needed hegemony but you can kind of um find alternative like strands and tendencies within that cultural tradition that go against the selected means and how they're used like for example in like britain you have the whole tradition of the levelers and the diggers and john ball and so I think that, like, when you have, like, reactionary, like, imperial nationalists trying to, like, 
drawn this like great tradition of empire and whatever like i guess the alternative like raymond williams is saying is that well we have we can also select our own aspects from this tradition and, and give them a meaning that can serve our you know our own hegemony yeah it's it's one of those interesting things that i've always struggled with in terms of trying to think radically which is i actually wrote something on george bataille which is kind of funny because he's in some ways like antithetical to this because he's he's all about like waste and and like expression through not working but i was writing about him and i was making the argument that one of the like if, if we, even if we had a revolution i think you know kind of like william says there would still be uh contradictions and things to be worked out like including things like racism and stuff but it's also there i think that what part of what socialism is about and trying to reach communism is to create a society where you can address contradictions in a way and and one of the more interesting paradoxes that's probably better than any society we could have would be to try and find a world where one of the main questions is how do we create a full global interconnected society which therefore is a culture while also giving individuals and localized people the ability to have their own discoveries and things like that too where it's like how do you create this system of you know the tradition that is communism and the goals that you're striving for that inherently encourages other people to find their own expressions and traditions and things that are are questioning things and and being entirely different and 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 pointing out like oh there isn't like just the good history that we get to claim there's always these complications and other forms of history that we have to have too yeah yeah it's like how you create a universalism that's not imposed upon people but is a product of the particularisms engaging with each other and developing through it emerging to create something greater yeah. And uh, there's a key difference between like a, a, a homogenous culture and a, a common culture. I think the, uh, the, the, the homogenous culture is already wrapped up with uh, mass society where cultural objects are presented as commodities and uh, those who um, uh, consume them are alienated from their own encounter with that cultural object, but also from the actual work and the practical elements that go into uh, uh, forming culture itself. Whereas um, a common culture would probably um, move towards, um, well, I mean, move away from that kind of um, alienation, I suppose, in William's mind. Well, it's kind of, it, it brings up something I always think about, which is sort of, on the one hand, I'm one of those people that thinks that, you know, under communism, it may not be the case that something like uh, religious beliefs would necessarily just like kind of go away. Like, I I'm feel like, <laughs> yeah, I feel like, I feel like even like, even when you entered full, you know, like, 
full stage communism, you could probably like I hopefully you would have a society where the religious beliefs of individuals would be something that is like, you know, good for them and produces more community and communication and stuff. Like it I just don't think it will just be like, yep, we'll just reach a point where nobody believes anything like that ever again. But um but I kind of wonder sometimes about like, yeah, under communism, wouldn't you like Sometimes people talk about it where it, you get the sense that they're like, yeah, we'll just kind of all return to like, everyone will live in their city and they'll have their local culture and it will just be their self-contained common culture. And I'm like, I kind of think about like, well, if you actually had a globally collected society, what we think of as cultural appropriation or something might be even more abundant, but ideally it would start to enter into a phase where it wouldn't be commoditized and boiled down and like, if I took an interest in trying to undercover the real spiritual and intellectual history of Taoism or Buddhism, it wouldn't come to me from some internet yogi who obviously is like just watering it all down and mixing it up with a bunch of other stuff. Like that idea of being in a common culture, like is that compatible with a kind of like autonomous culture or like, I can pick up traditions for myself in a way that actually feels rooted to something that's bigger than myself. Um, and it wouldn't even necessarily have to just be spiritual in this sense, but like traditions from localized areas can grow and become more global, but, but not in the kind of shitty commoditized disrespectful way that we have now It would come from a real attempt of understanding and finding rootedness, even if you're not like localized in some region. Yeah, you wouldn't be, like, using people's cultures to, like, profit off of them without, without you know, respecting their culture as something that has connection, something beyond mere commodification. Mm -hmm. And uh, as uh, Donald was saying earlier, the whole idea of the priesthood came out of this division of labor between mm -hmm. uh, the mental and uh, the menial. So in a uh, communist society where efforts have been made to um, transcend a certain division of uh, labor, what we see as the current form of religion or spirituality would have been surpassed to some degree. So to a certain extent, we can't quite anticipate what spirituality or religiosity would look like um, after that split. Yeah, I agree. But I also, maybe there will be more continuity between the current world and the future world, and we also realize. But that's yeah. a whole other kind of discussion. But I, can, I kind of think that like a lot of um, what may be like emergent cultural practices in our current society could also be prefigurations of culture and a future society mm -hmm. that will not be able to fully express themselves but that that actually reminds me um one thing that i was thinking about when reading this was there was an essay in the new left review uh it wasn't this last issue but the one before it and it I guess there had been, they've been having a series of kind of back and forths about Raymond Williams recently. I haven't read the whole discussion, but like someone wrote an essay and they've had a bunch of responses to it. And the essay I read had an interesting point where at the end, the author, she was saying how she thought Williams had some really good points, but that they felt 
kind of like his writing was a little bit outdated or kind of stodgy or romantic and just a kind of just stylistically like it was a, something that was a little you kind of got like a this is an old guy that is like writing for magazines and stuff but they kind of said how they felt like the new interest in mark fisher as a who was also you know english comes from I think it's a little bit more of a working class background mm -hmm. and was trying to, they kind of say there's a way of thinking about the work that Mark Fisher was doing that is more productive thinking of it in terms of what uh, Raymond Williams is doing than some of the more, you know, like the kind of like, oh, it's all about like going out and doing drugs and listening to music, acid communism kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I thought that was an interesting point because he is, he is someone who part of the whole appeal and some of the unfortunate romanticization of him does come from just the the way that he broke through a new kind of communication network and was writing in a very engaging, interesting way that was really talking about modern ideas and problems in a very upfront way and not like getting bogged down into like, well, I need to talk about this one thinker's particularities for three chapters before I ever mention anything current. Um, and and he was very realistic about uh, matters organization. I mean, like like Raymond Williams, Mark Fisher was very involved in uh, a socialist labor party. Uh, Fisher, like a bunch of other thinkers and writers, were um, essentially brainstorming policies with uh, John McDonald about how to. Um, bring uh, socialism into uh, you know 21st century Brit British society and how to uh, make it seem exciting and uh, represents what a, a future socialist state could really look like. And I think uh, one of the uh, pr proposals that um, came out of those sessions was... Um, the Labour Party proposal to, for, to form uh, worker cooperatives of moving towards uh, workplace democracy in various places um, in the UK, which was quite reminiscent of what the Labour New Left were trying to do in uh, the 1970s, which is partly what Williams was responding to in those last two essays. I think uh, that actually kind of relates to the whole idea of structures or feeling. Because I think, like, someone like Mark Fisher, I'm not super familiar with it. I've heard Capitalist Realism, but that's about it. And maybe, like, a couple of his essays on um, music. But um, it seemed like he was trying, trying to do was create, like, a new structure of feeling for, like, a modern left that was forward-thinking and not just nostalgic about the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's kind of, like, you know... I have my critiques of his politics. I think sometimes he had a weird mix of thinking too big and too small at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I wrote for Cosmonaut the critique of some of the, like, new acid communist stuff. But I, I, I do think that, like, one of my friends is, he does some stuff for, like, the Zero Books videos, and he does, he kind of considers himself an acid communist and does weird art and memes and things. But but I, I have talked with them, and I do think 
I do think if there is something possible in that kind of way of thinking, it is that structure of feeling. I think there's sometimes a, mis a mistaken attempt to say the structure of feeling is what you what drives organization itself or what drives politics itself. But I think if you can understand the limitations, the idea of just saying like, oh, we need to make left politics cool and interesting and worth talking about and not like you're just going to get shut down by some sectlet that has a list of what you should and shouldn't say about ex issues X, Y, and Z. Like, mm -hmm. I think that portion of it is a, actually a really good goal and that something like Mark Fisher and Raymond Williams does point out and is worth thinking about. I think it might be worth just talking about what exactly the structure of feeling means because I think that's something that is worth kind of just unpacking. Because I, um, I don't know if it's from this book. I, I remember him kind of using, like, the metaphor of, like, a solution. Like a, like, a mix of different, like, chemicals. And, like, like when you have, like a, like, a mix of different chemicals, you have, like, the, um... It kind of particulates... Or, um, into like a after it's all kind of mixed together, it comes out and just like one specific like participates. I think, like, um, what's up? let me find the quote real quick. Yeah, I do think it's something that comes maybe from one of his earlier works. I think it, it might, he definitely writes about it explicitly in Marxism and literature and literature. Yeah. Indeed. Wait, give me the suspect. I can just grab it. Here, I found the, uh, this is from Marxism. For structures of feeling can be defined as social experiences in solution, as distinct from other social semantic formations with have, which have been precipitated and are more evidently and more immediately available. So he's kind of saying, like, when you have like a, a solution, this is like when everything is kind of mixing together and this general like solution, and then the more um coherent and specific like um semantic formations are to precipitate, but the um structure of feeling is like all these different elements in in like a in a solution mixing together and before they've kind of been cohered into a very specific um semantic formation like he's talking about like um just ways of thinking and ways of feeling and ways of describing things and ways of just kind of experience that haven't been completely cohered into a specific product i think that i mean that my that's my understanding at least Definitely. Uh, I think he does talk about uh, this idea of uh, practical uh, consciousness in Marxism and literature, where he's trying to explain the uh, structures of feeling, which is um, separate from what he calls official consciousness, which would probably relate to the idea of the dominant within uh, hegemony. Um, and has um, a degree of freedom and control. And he describes it as a kind of feeling and thinking, which is indeed social and material, but each in an embryonic phase before it can become fully articulate. 
and defined exchange. Its relation with the already articulate and defined are then exceptionally complex. So is this emergent um, response to uh, social relations that hasn't been that's before any kind of incorporation and is just about to be articulated in um, a variety of ways. Yeah, I think like this whole idea of structure of feeling, it's it's very useful for kind of understanding like like you could use it to understand like a political culture. Mm -hmm. Like if you're like examining like uh, let's say for example um, the Jacobins in the French Revolution. Like what is like the way that they talk about things, the ways of um intercoursing, interfacing with um each other, with the world around them, and how these different um kind of uh cultural practices all kind of mesh and create you know concrete examples of material culture, but there's also a kind of a um there's a, a general kind of way that people relate to the world and that you can kind of um group together and, and comprehend or like what is the structure of feeling of like like Bolshevism. There's this kind of utopian attitude of there's this kind of technological fascination with modernity. There's this kind of um idea of militancy. I feel like you can apply this in a lot of different historical and political contexts. Well, he, like his, in, in the book we read, he kind of talks about this with the Welsh industrial novel. Um, you just broke up for me. Yeah, sorry, say that again. Oh, sorry. Um, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, yep. Um, I was just saying, um, in in the book we read, he talks about like this in relation to the Welsh industrial novel, and he has this interesting thing where he's talking about how like yeah, there was this whole there's a legitimate feeling of people talking about something or writing about something and expressing a whole space and experience that was new and or or wasn't necessarily new but like just wasn't there before and people were suddenly thinking about it in different ways um but it kind of made me think of like it made me think about the way that the movie like sorry to bother you came out and it even among people who you know everyone everyone on the left is pretty used to i think like seeing a movie that's kind of socially progressive and just being like yeah it was pretty good but you know it doesn't really matter like you know, it's just another Hollywood movie. Someone's making money off of it. But like with Sorry to Bother You, like everyone was like, like, wow, someone like made this movie and it was talking about a common experience of being like in a phone, like a phone bank and just talking with people. And and it's not a utopian movie by any means, but it really did watching it and like talking about it with people. You had that sense of like, yeah, someone like got out there and was talking about something that nobody talks about right now. It's certainly not in those terms. Um, and it's obviously there, like 
there's limitations to what like that can do but it it i think there is something about reading William and Williams now it's interesting that we're reading him at a time where people regardless of how abstract they might be or over theorized there's a lot of talk about like are people thinking about utopia again are people thinking about mm. this kind of stuff again and and that yeah that kind of cultural structural feeling that there's something that's been disturbed or is re rearranging itself or coming into view yeah and you also get that with like the bloomsbury group essay mm. oh yeah where he's kind of talking about how this is like this faction of the bourgeois that wants to kind of like create this like higher form of civilization and they're kind of like a um an avant-garde of a specific faction of the bourgeois and it kind of like what groups them all together is like this kind of structure of feeling that you're creating like a higher form of culture that mm is more advanced than even like the rest of their class and how this like kind of faction of their class kind of ended up becoming like a trailblazer of the future class. It was, I, I really liked that essay and I, I didn't have like any idea what it was going to be about at first. Like I read the Bloomsbury fraction and I was like, I don't know what that <laughs> refers to, but um it was interesting because it it's on the one hand he does kind of say it, it's kind of like when people look at you know the early utopian movements like the diggers and stuff and there's kind of that like oh well they they tried but they were limited by their time and we're gonna do the same thing but better um but he has a really good mix of like yeah how they have that how there's that sense of something new but also he kind of kind of points out how there's a certain almost like it kind of reminded me of some of the discourse about the PMC right now where he kind of is like really like yeah these people are very limited in their actual conception of what a new culture or a new society means because of their their class position yeah definitely it's like um it kind of actually made me think of like the 8 and how like you kind of like had this, or this like the general generation '68ers, where you had like this more progressive, like kind of faction of like the petty bourgeois who wanted to kind of break down the like oppressive hierarchical structures of Fordism and kind of free up this like just kind of anarchic flow of desire, and they were kind of like a rebelling against the dominant culture. Well, then with like the rise of neoliberalism, a capitalism kind of embraces the spontaneous, like kind of creative destruction ideology. And so they were kind of like trailblazers of their time by going against the norm of their time. Well, and I think it I think it points out to what you mentioned earlier, which is like you can't you can't just say, well, we need more personal freedom, more autonomy, more, you know individual relationships in opposition to something, but you need to be able to continually make meaning about what that means from a radical perspective and build on that meaning so that when, you know, when the institution starts saying, well, we've given you some individualized freedoms and stuff, you can say, well, no, we have developed and maintain a real meaning of what we expect from that and what we're fighting for kind of thing. 
with like contesting what the the phraseology and real meanings of those relationships are yeah exactly like you're creating a new meaning of of what individual freedom means not merely like fighting for what the hegemonic group defines as individual freedom um how did people feel um how did people like his essay on a science fiction and utopia hold on it's um it's like around yeah page 196 is where it starts i thought that i thought that was an interesting way of like looking at science fiction as like kind of like a way for people to to kind of um create new worlds and often they can be completely like sequestered off from the existing world like you're kind of just um creating like a totally blank canvas and creating something completely new whereas like utopia there's like a a relation to the existing world that's more apparent and obvious but like what kind of unites the two is this kind of break from the existing reality yeah oh i think we just lost oh fuck <laughs> Patrick. Huh. But yeah, I mean, it's. Uh... I also like the essay on materialism. Yeah, yeah, the, the the problems of materialism. One is that the one you mean? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I want to read that guy. Um, what's his name? Sebastian Temperion, Temperino, or I think that's what it is. Uh, Sebastian uh... Temperino. Are we? Yeah, Tim Perano on materialism. I also read that book, uh, The Freudian Slip, right? Yeah, that's his other book. I should probably actually read some Freud, though, before I read, like, critiques of Freud. You ever actually, have you ever read um Christopher Caldwell? Caldwell? No, no, no. no he kind of reminds he was a, um, he was a member of the Communist Party of Great Britain. All right, I'm back. Oh, yes. Okay. Good to have you back. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I was like, it's oddly quiet. And then I looked up and I was like, yeah. oh. Yeah, I was like, oh, fuck, no one responded to what I said. I must have said something stupid. <laughs> uh, so what were, you, where were you at? What were you talking uh, about? I was talking about the science fiction essay and what people thought about. Oh, yeah. Topia. Yeah, I mean, this is, yeah, this is, interesting to me just because like i don't know i feel like there's a lot of talk about like utopia now and like some of it's kind of superficial but it is interesting like why that's a big you know thing that's come back though most people take it from like frederick jameson i think yeah well, i think with utopia i think that having like ideas of utopia and a discourse of utopia is very important for building a movement in the here and now because if you have this kind of idea of a different society it makes it more likely that people will be able will be willing to actually fight against the current society like even if you're not going to be able to like plan out what the future society looks like the ability to imagine something different makes people more bold and willing to uh to challenge the current order mm -hmm. And a lot of uh, like contemporary discussion of utopia tends to revolve around this notion of possibility, which relates to like what 
Williams has tried doing that in that last essay of what does it mean to actually produce and practice possibility rather than just uh, detect it or be aware of possibilities. Yeah, now that's very much what Rudolf Barrow was trying to do in East Germany was to actually like move society forward and and try to like open up new possibilities from what actually existing a socialism had accomplished rather than try to like make actually existing socialism kind of conform to like bourgeois liberal norms. Yeah, it's an it's another one of those kind of uh tensions in the idea of a future society that is like because you want to have a society that constantly feels like it can move forward and be progressive and try new things. And at the same time, you want to have a sense where people feel like their individual lives and their communal existence is stable and that, you know, they can have real moments that aren't that are the here and now and not just thinking ahead all the time. Yeah, um, I think um, an interesting point he makes in the science fiction essay is that... Um, you kind of have this um, theme in a lot of dystopia where community is seen as like this oppressive thing. Mm. Well, and I think, sorry, sorry to keep on leapfrogging back between essays, but like the, the, the last essay where he talks about, where he's talking about Barrow's idea of uh, surplus consciousness leads into a lot of like the, the writing he does on science fiction, especially when he talks about Barrow's. Um, distinction between compensatory and emancipatory uses of like surplus consciousness mm -hmm. where uh, cons co compensation uses of that consciousness is like drives to possession and consumption and uh, powers which are always like uh, substitutes for um, equality with others and other people's human needs whereas an emancipatory use of that surplus is a he calls it a non-exploitative orientation towards self-realization and collective realization, uh, recognition of the essential qualities of others. And this is what he sees as like uh, one of the main endpoints of uh, a cultural revolution is to move towards uh, a formation that would encourage those emancipatory uses of surplus uh, consciousness and away from those compensatory ones. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, Barrow was interesting in that he was able to kind of combine utopianism with a political program for the present. Yeah, exactly. That's what really what he was. He was trying to see, like, how do we actually engage in the construction of a new society that goes beyond the current society? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and what do we do when we get there? Yeah, and I think... Um, a theme in his work was that there isn't really an end point that we're reaching this end of history, but it's going to be this constant process of recreating ourselves and creating new structures and ways of life. And mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, reading this thing as a whole, you get, you really do get the sense of how Raymond Williams is interested in. He's interested in that process of on the one hand, you are kind of, you are in this, like, you know, the, the common structuralist observation that who you are is in large part going to be determined by what you have access to because it's around you. Um, but he also has this, his, his whole point about consciousness being like, you know, 
if that was it, no one would have ever advanced or questioned any no. single thing in the world. So what exactly does it mean to have a society where where that that quirk of human relationships of looking around and being like, well, why isn't this thing like this? Why why this um, becomes a part of the the productive forces becomes something that really changes society in a continual way that's really that's that's really meaningful um and that, that's why one of the reasons why i'm curious about his modernist book when we get to that because like with the bloomsbury faction you get a little bit of it but he kind of because a lot of people talk about modernism in those terms right like modernism is the movement about constantly looking around you and taking what's there but also doing things new and new ways and constructing things and rearranging them and stuff. So I'm wondering where he kind of takes that. Yeah, I think uh, Raymond Williams is a good alternative to like Althusserianism, where it's like, we are essentially nothing more than the structures and institutions that create us. Whereas like Williams sees us creating these institutions and structures and like to create culture is something that is actively consciously produced by humans and isn't this like structurally interpolated like mechanism well we've been talking for over an hour now and that that last comment um so we haven't exactly decided on the next book we want to read but that last comment made me think maybe should we maybe look at Eagleton? Because he's another British Marxist in the cultural tradition. And he was kind of one of the people that brought Althusserianism into English uh, English cultural theory. But he, it might be an interesting aspect because it's kind of Althusser projected through this kind of new left post Raymond Williams tradition. So it might be interesting to look at. Yeah, I'm down. Yeah. Oh, sorry, you go, Donald. Um, would it be the function of criticism? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that would be the that's in this this series of the radical thinkers. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll order that as soon as possible. And I think maybe after that we should just do all through Sarah for Marx, as that's in the series. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, yeah, I just knew Andrew. You said you'd prefer something short for this month, so yeah, yeah I think that one's short. It's a leap year. Even if it isn't, it's February, and <laughs> February is not a good reading month. But uh, yeah, so why don't we plan on that for next time? And yeah, I thought, and I guess like closing off, just like it seems like we all thought this was a good book. We thought it raised good questions about communication interior to the left and the way we think about things, and even offered some stuff that could potentially lead to if not solutions, ways of approaching and dealing with them. Yeah, I really liked Raymond Williams, and this has me hyped to read more of his stuff. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I, I, and you can tell how good a book is uh, by how many other books it uh, sends you to. Like, well, in the process of reading this, I was, like, going to Williams' other books and also, like, the letters of Marx and Engels and also like a book about uh, the Labour Party in the 20th century. So it's always good when um, a uh, book makes you uh, 
seek connections like that and actually try and figure out uh, and figure out how you can incorporate the ideas into your own practice. Yeah. And he does it. He does it in a way that flows well. It's not one of those essays where he just name drops like a billion people and it's like, I'm just going to ad hoc stick a bunch of ideas together. Like he really threads things through in a really nice way. Uh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. He's a clear writer. I mean, sometimes I don't actually know what he's doing, but often I think that might just because I'm not familiar with the source material he's writing about. But overall, I find yeah. him very... I like this Anglo tradition of Marxism. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff that is in the, the British-English left, I think. Yeah. And I think this shows this off, this kind of, this period of, of what was going on there well. But uh, yeah, so I guess it all comes down to if you liked what we were talking about and you haven't read this, this is a, a good book to to look at from this series. Um, and I guess we can close it off there unless anyone really has any other things they want to bring up. I just want to say I really like the advertising essay. Oh, yeah, we I didn't really talk about that. To actually add to it, but it's just it's a good essay. Read it. Definitely. I was, and I think that, you know, if, if you want to understand anything about like the, uh, like the New York Times celebration of the intellectual dark web and all of those sort of uh, new pseudo conservative figures, the culture and anarchy essay just like demonstrates uh, why it's a recurrent problem. Yeah. I, I would say, like, if you're going to read this, like, it's a really good book to read an essay and just like just take a moment to think like what what in this that he's responding to has like a contemporary analog or like mm -hmm. relationship like it's really it's a really good way to read this yeah, that's yeah, a that's good. A good point. but uh yeah so i guess that will end our first episode of uh radical thoughts and eagleton next time eagleton next time Thank you for joining us on this first episode of Radical Thoughts. Feel free to read along and grab a copy of Terry Eagleton's The Function of Criticism for our next discussion. Radical Thoughts is an independent program and is not in any way affiliated with Verso Books. We hope you will join us next time. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Have a nice day. intricacies of theory that we should trip over so simple a historical uh, tangle. Sometimes people were impatient that one wasn't getting through to what were called the fundamental issues, but some of the fundamental issues were the process of getting through. To